You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here with a film special. One of our little rare ones. And this week, Herds, we are talking about the Inugami clan, or the Inugamis, or the Inugami curse, or Inugami Keno Ichizoku. Or the Inugami family, as it is on Wikipedia. It's, there's too <laughs> many titles. There's a lot of there's titles, just, yeah too many titles for this but yes we are talking about the two films by kon ichikawa released in 1976 and 2006 respectively both under the same japanese title but varying english translations and it follows the seishi yokomizo story of the same name it's part of the kosuke kendaichi series following on from the honjin murders which we covered previously on the show the English edition was recently published or republished by Pushkin Vertigo after first appearing on our shores back in the early noughties. And I've read the book, Herds hasn't, and we decided to sit down and watch this film because I was just so curious why there were two films by the same director. Yeah, what, what kind of crazy differences there might be between the books and the movie and then the two movies to each other, because why, why would you remake a film if not to improve upon your previous creation in some notable way? Yeah, there, there was a documentary made about the director, Konichikawa, at the same time as the 2006 film was coming out. I wasn't able to track down a version of that film, so it may have had something to do like as a framing device for that documentary. I'm not really sure, and I couldn't find any firm word on the matter. It was also his last film, so it seems like it's kind of a first in, last out sort of thing. Like he wanted this to be his final masterpiece, a return to his glory days, as it were, that sort of thing. But obviously we, we don't know for sure because we can't find this blasted documentary. <laughs> From what I have heard, the documentary is a bit more of a like uh, prototypical video essay slideshow so i don't know how much it goes directly into that and it's definitely speculation on our part but yeah all i can find is that there are a few minutes footage of ichikawa directing in the documentary so i guess the the other hour and 17 minutes are spent looking at something other than him directing which is <laughs> wild to me but but no i really enjoyed these films that's what i said out the gate i really enjoyed the strange directing style and obviously the story itself is a it's a classic as soon as the you know the crazy man in a mask turns up and he's got he's got a hat and scarf on and they ask him to take off the hat and scarf and then they ask him to take off the mask and there's another mask underneath that mask like the man is wearing five different masks at any given time you know you're in for a director that that knows the tropes knows what you're getting into right I mean, it's also fantastic because there is so much horror avenue in the Inugami curse, like the malaised, horrible, burnt face of the son of the family who wears the mask as he comes back from war. Not not to mention the deaths themselves, like yes. the very first, well, not the first death, but the first serious death is a man's head on a mannequin, you know, surrounded by Peaceful Flowers, which is one of the, the mums, as they call them, chrysanthemums. And it's it's that's one of the symbols of the family. It's all very poetic. But like, yeah, there's just this bloody head, you know, sitting there on its own. Where's the body? Why did the killer separate the head from the body? And it all kind of ties into the mystery. But yeah, all the bodies are in these like really gory and awful 
situations. It's definitely something that we've seen a fair bit from Seishi Yokomizo in the Kindaichi series, that a lot of the murders themselves are very evocative of the thematics. So, you know, locked rooms that contain certain impossible details that are tied to the culture of the people that we're seeing, like, you know, paint matching blood and all that sort of stuff is very much in the scope of the way that Seishi likes to write these murders. And yeah, the Inagami clan has like three artifacts that were handed down from the patriarch who dies of natural causes at the beginning of the story to kick off this entire will-based debacle. And, you know, each of the murders kind of parallels one of those implements. I would say some in a more direct way than others, but but yeah, like each of the deaths is associated with one of these three artifacts. And it's clear that whoever is doing these murders and displaying the bodies in a way that they're honestly very easily discovered, which is a really fun aspect of the, of the crime here. Like they're all proudly displayed. So there's something dark in the psychology of the, of the criminal here, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. I also thought that the film in that sense did a really great job of capturing the fact that you knew someone had to be an accomplice in the cast in that, like, even if they weren't participating in the crimes, they must have seen what was going on. Like, it was very clear that things as blatant as this couldn't have gone as completely unnoticed. I mean, the movie does a good job in general of throwing the blame around on every single character. Although, philosophically, the director and, and I assume the original story, you know, they, they talk about how it's in some ways the will of the patriarch of the family on his deathbed to, to leave his family in disarray. And so the chaos that we're seeing, you know, who's accomplices and who's not and who's a, who's a criminal and who's not, like there's something rotten at the core of this family. That's why they're the title of the book, the Inugamis or the Inugami family, because the patriarch basically bore everybody out of wedlock and every person in the cast is a half sibling or whatever. And, you know, there's, there's a slight scale of morality in terms of, how incestuous our characters get, but there's something wrong with almost every character in this family. There's something that our detective needs to uncover and, and figure out. One of my favorite scenes in the film is just watching Kindaichi. He sits down with his, his brush and his paper and he starts tracking out the family tree because he figures that if he's going to solve this, he needs to know the exact details. It's like you're drawing out the the schematics of a house, except it's the schematics of the family itself. Well, yeah. And I think the other thing that's really fascinating is especially for Seishi Yokomizo's work, which tends to deal at least indirectly with a lot of the fallout of the Second World War. Like it's so interesting that the Inugami family itself is like a pharmaceuticals empire. And I like the way that it sort of delves into those questions. And we do get answers a bit later on as to how it ties into things. Um, that we'll speak about when we get into the mystery section, the spoilers stuff. I don't know that I entirely followed how the pharmaceuticals tied into it. Like, obviously, the the patriarch did bad stuff, but like, I don't know. I definitely felt like that was an element that could have been tied in a little bit more cleanly. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that I think is interesting is that that is that is very much in the style of you know the early Honkaku Japanese murder mystery, where the set dressing of cultural trauma in the aftermath of the war is very prevalent but not necessarily entirely clear not necessarily the, the direct cause of the crime 
right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I think that it is really fascinating that this was the chosen piece for this family because I guess I don't necessarily have the context for how pharmaceutical companies were or were not a part of that cultural fallout. But it's very clear that by its presence here and by the almost like ghostly way that they talk about it, that there is a very strong thread there. Well, I mean, even the presence of the the patriarch is not entirely explored, but is suggested both through the words that, that Kindeji says as he talks about the family history and also the the visual language of the film. And this is more prevalent in the, the latter half, but th- there's a painting because, of course, there's a painting of the patriarch and the patriarch's painting moves and the expression changes. It reminds me of a, a, a lot a lot of Knives Out. There's a famous painting in the recent Ryan Johnson film, Knives Out, which involves a painting that changes throughout the film. But obviously by the painting moving and falling off its perch and whatever, we're showing the will of the patriarch. It's a very deliberate choice that he only shows up for the very start of the film and he doesn't say anything. He just points at his will. He points to the will that will set off the chaos that will consume the family, hopefully. It's like what he wants implicitly i will say i did really like in both films the way that the like makeup and posture was done on sahe inugami the like patriarch of the family in that picture like it looked satirical (laughs) the way that the like eyebrows are flared and the frazzled hair and this unending scowl i mean he looks a bit like a like a mad scientist he looks like a dr wiley or something like He's ready to break out into alchemy and create a mad robot at any second. I know. Also, it was so it was so nice having Hideji Otaki, the like actor who plays the priest, yes, recur between the two films thirty years apart. Like he he already he already looked like a wizened old man in the first one, and it looks like he hasn't aged a day in the second one, which was kind of fun. Well, as well as Koji Ishizaka, the the actor for Kindaichi, he reprises his role, which is fantastic. Yeah, because Connie Shikawa and Koji Ishizaka made like four or five films back in the 1970s in the Kindaichi series. And this was like their return to the character. I want to say, I, di- I didn't know this going into the second film. I didn't know that they were the same actors, but we noticed the priest. And then I, I kept thinking, man, that Kindaichi actor, he's a lot older than he was in the first film. I wonder... I wonder why <laughs> that might be the case. It's the same guy. It's great. It was it was really funny. And especially because like we haven't even really mentioned it this far, but the two films for a large portion of themselves are pretty well shot for shot. Yeah, they're pretty much the same film. There are differences in terms of camera quality and like expressions. I think that the the acting work in the newer film is a little bit more restrained. I think in general, the second film is a, a little bit more restrained especially when it comes to like gratuitous sexual scenes and use of, I don't, the, 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 like, what do you, what do you call it? Like when, when the whole set is just completely washed out and it's being used to indicate like that the scene is a flashback or it's being concocted in a fit of madness by the participants. Yeah. Yeah. Like some of the, some of the cuts to flashbacks in the original film at first, you know, you're watching it like, is that supposed to be here? Did someone like accidentally edit in a piece of footage for another film? It felt much more integrated in the more modern one. I want to say, just to give myself some credit, when we saw the first supposed error in the first film, I went, is that a flashback? 
to a secret fourth son? And I was like, nah, that's 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 ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I bit my tongue because I knew exactly what we were looking at, but our friends who were watching with us were like, nah, I think it was, think it was just in there. Yeah. To be <laughs> like, fair, though, I, got it in one. I also wasn't sure if we had already mentioned a fourth son because, as you sort of alluded to going into this, there are a lot of characters. Most of them don't matter, and a lot of them die, which is helpful. But, like... There's a lot. There's a lot of characters to work with here. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the actual like linguistics of everyone's names are, but at least phonetically, there's a bunch of characters who sort of overlap a little bit by syllables and the way that they sound. Like the two sons are Sukitake and Sukekio, and the two daughters are Umeko and and Sukitomo. Yeah, Sukitake and Sukitomo and Sukekio, like. They're all very similar. Obviously, that's a like that's a character thing. There's obviously a play. I don't know what the character is, but there's a play on the the same character at the side of their name to give three different meanings. A lot of the characters are named similarly. A lot of the characters don't matter. You know, some of them don't even get names, which is interesting. The the hotel owners don't get names. Very interesting. But yeah, I I do like though that we can if you kind of focus on the three sons and their three mothers as the main suspects i guess of the case that does help you kind of sort through the cast a little bit because pretty much everybody else are the the will readers and the hotel owners and the waitress that kindaichi gets to sit down with and have tea with at one point and he flirts with and the mustache twirling police chief you know if, oh so good <laughs> the best so character good. he in in the remake fantastic Mwah. last thing before we move on and we'll, we'll kind of continue this but with spoilers in the mystery section uh, the music in both versions, fantastic. I loved it so much. It's like... It's wild. It's a little all over the place <laughs> in a way that's genuinely really fun. Yeah. Very, like, retro-progressive jazz kind of sound. Lots of fake strings and complex instrumentation playing simple themes. I loved it. It was just so good to kind of sit back and soak in. Yeah, it felt very psychedelic to me. I Every time a new, like, horn would blare, I would just laugh. I'd be like, what is happening? This is insane that this is the music they went with. <laughs> the the sound in general is, is really wild. I like that they kept a lot of the themes between the two versions over 30 years. Like, they were very clearly reproduced and polished up for the 2006 version, but not in a way that lost the spirit of the original. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree. There were, there were some scenes that were remodeled for taste, but by and large, the the feel of the film was, was kept, which is really awesome. Mm. I suppose we should wrap this here and we'll be back with uh, full spoilers to the end towards the back of the show. So stick with us here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. This is Death of the Reader. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds, here for your murder mystery world tour, and it is spoilers time for the Inugami family. Can I can I tell you, Herds? <laughs> yep. I, I have one big spoiler that really just shot shot me in the foot through what this film. What do you mean? How could you're the well, one this, who read the book? This film is set in the 1940s. Oh Herds. no, it's the yacht. <laughs> And yes. there's a scene where a character is is on a boat. No. And we had can't. a period appropriate boat. But then in the 2006 version <laughs> of the film, for some reason, they had the 1990s Bayliner 2556 just <laughs> screaming on by. And 
it, it it seems so out of place because we have all of these period appropriate cars and buildings and furniture and clothes, and then there's just this, this motor motor yacht from the 1990s just cruising across the bay, and it's not like it's a thing in the background. One of the characters is driving the thing. Yeah, two characters hop on the boat at one point. Just like yeah, she she gets kidnapped onto the boat. I should say it's famously. Did, I was gonna say it could, it could be a sponsorship from the from the company, but then why would you have your boat be the kidnap boat why would that be the yeah, boat? why would you have your boat be the kidnap boat and why idea. would you go with the 1990s like surely you haven't just started making boats bayliner uh, sometimes you just know when you found a world-class model of boat and you need to put it in your film it just it took me out of things you see that boat and it clicks with so you. much i was so startled it's terrible well, I'm glad that that's your biggest complaint with the entire experience. That's the only thing that you found jarring. Oh, yeah. Strange. I mean, this film was fantastic. Let's get into spoilers here. The the masked the man in the story, Asukekio, which is the, the third son of the family. And then the other masked man there are is two? Shizuma, who is the other son. He's the secret fourth son. And those two characters are played by the same actor, which works because uh, Shizuma has a horrible burn face, thus the the pretense for the mask, right? And those two characters switch throughout the story and you're supposed to be trying to figure out who's who and who's where. But the way that they've tackled that from a, from a casting stance is just to have the same actor play both roles. And I think it works perfectly. Like if you've deliberately got one of those two characters never showing their real face because it's got burns on it, it's very easy to convince the audience that they are two separate characters. And I quite liked that the killer was the mum. I liked that she was secretly in the shares the whole time. Because can I tell you, when mum number three and son number four show up in the car and there's already been a murder, you're supposed to think like, well, those characters have an alibi, so they couldn't possibly have done a murder. But I'm sitting here and I know because I've read murder mysteries before that the murderer has to be one of those two. Well, I also really like that, you know, Sakekio and Shizuma are working together for a lot of the story to make this entire mask man thing happen. But they don't realize it, <laughs> right? Tell, tell me what you mean by they don't realize it. She doesn't know, does she? That her fake son is helping her because she thinks that she's got her real son and her real son is being a good boy. Well, it's actually her fake son while her real son is off preventing women from being molested. Yes. And <laughs> so th the thing that I like about irony. it is that yeah. both of Sukekio and Shizuma are helping Sukekio's mother, mm -hmm. but for opposite reasons. And in different ways. And it's because she she says that she knows her, her son and that, her, you know, this has to be her son and her son wouldn't commit a crime and all those sorts of stuff. And she's right, but the character that she thinks is her son isn't her son. Sometimes. Shizuma is basically trying to get revenge on the entire family. He must revenge. For what happened to his mother, who was the one who cursed the family. Yes. And so he is working against Matsuko, but with her to try and carry out the curse that Shizuma's mother, Tamayo, put on the family. And then Sukekio is trying to prevent doom from befalling his mother. And so in two separate motivations and in two separate ways, they are both helping the same character for opposite reasons. And on a mystery sense, that makes it really hard to nail down exactly what's happened. But just on like a character sense, it is so compelling that these people with opposite goals are... Uh, in each other's camps and like helping each other along 
the motivations all feel so complex and tangible because of it. It's not like, you know, the one-sided butler accomplice who is doing everything just because they're ordered to. Yeah, and I, I think what also makes it work is that in the finale of the film, there's more time given to the villains than to our hero, like very consciously so. We spend a good like 15 minutes just chatting to, I mean, we get the Sekekio rant where he reveals that he's Shizumaru and he goes, aha, I have done my revenge. But he hasn't actually, he hasn't quite gotten there yet. But anyway, we find out about the whole switcheroo business and we accuse the real Sekekio's mother of the crime. And we sit down with her and talk about why she's done it. Kindeji does his breakdown scene just with her. And she, you know, rebuts and goes back and forth. But then rather than being like, okay, we, we got to send her away. They have a big scene with the whole family where she just wants to spend time with her son. Now that she's finally been reunited with her son and her son isn't trying to like protect her in some roundabout way. Cause he tries to take the fall for her, which is a really fun moment where the police chief once again says, aha, I figured it out. It was him all along. And it's like, well, it can't be him then. Cause the police chief is never right. And he always thinks he's right. But yeah, the, the mother, she gets to talk about her complicated feelings towards her son and how she doesn't know if he's alive or not and what a fool she is. But in the end, she kills herself with the poison cigarettes that she used to commit the first murder. Yeah, like that's the one murder that we hadn't quite solved yet and she commits suicide with it to basically solve the crime, for, which is very generous of her really as far as mystery solving goes. Yeah, she basically hangs herself with her own noose in a very literal way, right, which is neat. And then Kindaichi gets hardly any time to actually exit the movie. Like everybody's saying, wow, now that we've had all of this time getting to know our antagonists and unpacking their complicated reasons for wanting to do crime and the ways in which they were covering for each other, let's go have a send off for Kindaichi. And he says, nope, grabs all his stuff and runs as far and fast as he can. Walks off into the distance. He's like, I'm out. I don't I don't want to deal with no send-off scene. I don't want to be here for that. The movie, especially the 2006 one, very much framed it as a like a bit of a John Dixon car ending where it's like, was Kendaichi even real? Yes, yes. Well, it's it's fun because it's, you know, you understand how important he is because he's the one who solved the case, but he doesn't do the Sherlock Holmes thing where he's like, and now I will sit down and talk about how clever I am with my closest companions and I'll see you in the next adventure. He just helps these people. And we know he's desperate because he's like worrying at the start of the film that he's not going to have enough money to like pay for his lodgings. So yeah, he's, he's like barely scraping his by. lodgings with rice yes. to start he's with. He's paying for it with, with rice that falls out of his hair or whatever. Look, he, I think I know, that was I know, just I meant to be dandruff. I know it's but. just dandruff, but it's, it's the same same color. Point is, yes, he pays for his lodgings with rice, and then rather than like milk his fame and his, you know, the fact that he's just saved this pharmaceutical company's family lineage or whatever, he he just leaves because he wants to do good. He wants to have the thrill of solving the case. He wants to help people. And then he just goes, he doesn't want to stick around for the congratulations. It also narratively serves the purpose that we don't have to stick around for the remaining legal battle of who gets what from the currently implemented version of the will. Cause the will is like a puzzle where it's like, and if this person is dead, then this happens. And if this person is dead, then it's this true. happens. The, the only line that this film was missing is when they're like, well, because we voided all these other parts of the will, that means that this person gets a happy ending. And it's, you know, the princess who wasn't allowed to have their freedom or the pauper that didn't have any money or whatever. Like, you know, it, that's the, that's the Disney ending. 
but we don't we don't get that. I know we skimmed on past it, but oh my goodness, the detective, especially in the 2006 version, mm. fantastic. Mm. He's a great time. I, I I feel like he was portrayed much more cartoonishly in the film than in the book. Yeah. But just the way that he'd always just go like, ah, I've got it. Does the exact same hand yeah. gesture. Like, yeah, he twirls his mustache and he, he he puts his fingers up in the air. Ah, I've got it. And he, he smacks his fists into his palm. I've got it. And he says it the exact same way, like three or maybe four times in the film. And every, wrong every time. Every, every single time. time. He looks so sure of himself, so confident, and he's always wrong. <laughs> and the way that he has his, like, colleague Senba over his shoulder and he's giving him instructions that are just nonsense. Yeah. And Senba is, like, so committed to carrying them out is excellent. It's great. Those scenes actually add a, a really much needed, like, levity to the mm. entire story. Because everybody else is, like, crying and wailing and playing the Koto. And then you just cut to the detective who's, like being a total idiot and it's it's great i guess before we wrap up herds do you feel like you understood why the film was made twice after watching it is this a trick question i feel like this is some kind of trap i mean i it's can definitely a bit of a trick question because i certainly don't feel like i do uh, okay i mean i i assume that it's ichikawa's desire to return to a previous work and show how far he's come i feel like that's it yeah, it's just so interesting because he's like such a well-respected director um, as as best I understand and has like a huge filmography. But for some reason, this is the one that he chose to return to. And I kind of love it. Like, I won't complain about people coming back to murder mystery. That's that's my home and place of refuge. This is, in my opinion, my analyses, a case of director nostalgia where he just wants to revisit that one, that classic one more time. And I mean, it was his last film, so let's hope this is the one that he really wanted to remake, you know? I certainly enjoyed seeing it twice. It was very interesting that the cinematography didn't really change between the two versions. Like, it was kind of the same shots captured with better cameras in the 2006 version, which was great. I liked that. I think, you know, if I had to pick a version to watch, I would watch the 2006 version and then jump back to the 1976 version to avoid the bayliner and then jump back once the boat scene's done. I'd go back for the flashback scenes. I'd be like, <laughs> the flashback scenes cut directly to the original movie and then cut back. Easy. It was really strange because like the 1976 version felt like a film of its era and the 2006 version felt like weirdly out of date because it went for that same cinematography like it had more close-ups i guess because it was more confident like capturing the detail in people's faces and i think the actors were more comfortable having obviously been trained for that era yeah if there's nothing else that can be said they obviously had an eye for detail that one guy what's his i don't know sereno sarazo sarazo look he belly flopped into that lake twice oh that was fantastic in, in both films 30 he, he years belly apart, flops in. the exact same belly flop it was perfect <laughs> it was brilliant it's the best part of the film i definitely enjoyed watching it twice and getting to like think and compare the differences but i don't feel like i have much of a takeaway having done that so much as just yeah well he made the same film twice guess he liked it look i think it was great i don't know that it was the best use of our time to watch the same film twice but i am fascinated by the decision to remake it I hope that, if nothing else, having a more current version of the film has brought more people on to watch it. 
that's all we can really hope for. Yeah, I'm hoping that by the time, you know, this episode gets into the editing bay, we've tracked down an episode who can answer this question a bit better for us, who you've already heard from at this point. And if we haven't, then let us know. <laughs> if you know, tell us. But nonetheless, I, I think it was worth tracking these films down, and I had a great time watching them. They were definitely a quality murder mystery story. It's a quality time. I enjoyed it. Alrighty. Shall we talk about the dark deeds to come then, Flex? Yes, I have absolutely no idea what your pick is going to be. We're in a bit of a <laughs> bit of an East Asian limbo at the moment, yeah. circling stories that are slightly car in style. Well, <laughs> I look. Can I tell you this is gonna be? It's it's sort of left field, but sort of not. We're we saying in 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 Asia, we're, we're going to China. We're going to be reading the Chinese Gold Murders by Robert Van Gulick. You may be wondering who's this Robert guy writing these. Chinese murder mysteries. And the, the truth is that a Dutch diplomat found some Chinese murder mysteries in a secondhand bookstore, restored them, translated them to English, cut half of it out and was like, I'm going to write my fan fiction. And this is that fan fiction. What? He's going to write fan fiction about these <laughs> 7th century Chinese murder mysteries that he found. That's what a bizarre origin story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is the chronologically- not publisher-wise, but chronologically first set of stories in the Judge D mystery series. And we'll be reading up to chapter seven. Uh, it is of the Chinese Gold Murders by Robert Van Gulick. Please enjoy. And look, I'm excited. Strap in for this one. This is a this is a historical murder mystery if ever I heard one. I'm so excited for this. Please be. Yeah. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We will be back next week with The Chinese Gold Murders by Robert Van Gulick. It's a Gong'an historical murder mystery. That's what they're called, Gong'an. It's great, it's gonna be great. (laughs) Ring the gong bong. This is your murder (laughs) mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. Catch you around, we're out of here. Gong. Gong.